if I were to ask you to think of a famous pair of biblical siblings, who would first come to mind? Right off the bat, famous biblical siblings. Maybe you would go Cain and Abel. Your mind is chronological, so you'd go there. And obviously, their story is so important to the, the bigger story that we read about in the book of Genesis. Maybe Cain and Abel. Maybe you think of two like Rachel and Leah, who are wrapped together in a very interesting story of mistaken identity and are central, really, to the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe you think Rachel and Leah. Maybe Moses and Aaron, two brothers at the crux of the Exodus, leading out the Israelites from Egypt. Maybe any you might have thought of. I'll guess, possibly though, these two might not come quickly to mind. Of course, we're very familiar with Mary and Martha, but they don't jump out at us right away. If I said famous biblical siblings, would you think of them immediately? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot that we can learn from these two incredible women. Women that the scripture tells us Jesus loved very much. It's really good to see everyone out here tonight. Let me add my welcome to you as well. Our numbers are down a little bit, as has been mentioned. Some people, I think the weather keeping them at home. Others, advance notice of who is preaching might be keeping them at home. You were not lucky enough to remember. Maybe you didn't know. So thank you for being here with me. It's exciting to have some time to be in the word together and see what maybe we can learn from these two great women. If you think of Mary and Martha, do you identify with either one of them pretty quickly? Just reading about them, we don't have much about them in the scripture, a few stories that they appear in, but they seem to represent kind of different people, noticeably different. You might say, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm more like Martha, though you don't want to raise your hand because... You know where this story is going that you see here. So inwardly, you're thinking, that's me. I'm very organized. I like to get stuff done. I'm fastidious. Maybe you, are, you feel more uh, a better kinship with Mary, who seems to be a little bit more relational, maybe more easygoing. Um, maybe that. You'd say, no, I identify more with that. Either way, with, with both of these sisters, I think tonight... Uh, we, can, we can learn to become more and less like Mary and Martha. And let's go to the scriptures to, to read about a couple stories, a few stories of these siblings and see what truth we can, we can pull out here. Our first passage, Luke chapter 10. This is probably, when I say Mary and Martha, this might be where you naturally go when you think of uh, accounts about these two. Um, what kind of what we see pictured here on the screen. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I'm not taking you to a passage. I'm not about to draw conclusions you have not heard before. We often um, look to this story for some truth about Jesus, about spending time with him and his teaching, and we should, because it's a great point to make. But worth mentioning here, Martha is doing a really good thing in this story. Martha is in, has invited Jesus to her home, and she is serving in this situation. She is trying to make preparations, to make accommodations for the teacher, who she has as a guest in the home, Jesus would, in another account, rebuke Simon for not doing some of these similar things. He comes in and he says, Simon, you gave me no kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You've not shown me any type of deference or any type of respect as the teacher. So Martha's not just hopelessly wasting her time here. She's doing some good things, and yet she's not focused on the one thing that's needed. And we take Jesus at his word here. One thing is needed, or one thing is important. But Martha's distracted, he says, by many things. What are we easily distracted by in our lives? We have access to the words of life. Just like Martha had words of life right there in her home at that moment. But she was distracted with many things, with serving, with these other things. What are we easily distracted by in life? Maybe our worries. In Mark chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus is speaking what we would call the parable of the sower, talking about the seed. It's falling on these different types of ground. And in verse 18, others are sown among the thorn. That's some of the, the seed. Others are sown among the thorns. And he's explaining the parable to his disciples here. And he says, in that part of the parable, those are the ones that hear the word, but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things enter in, choking the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, we recognize that in our minds, but the cares of life, deceitfulness of riches, we know those things are distractions, but is it still easy to rush after them? Elsewhere, Matthew 6, Jesus will warn about laying up treasures on earth as opposed to treasures in heaven because he explains why this would be such a bad idea to put treasures, to lay them up on earth because where your treasures are, that's where your heart will be also. 
nothing as he's talking about that is, is indicated this is some type of sinful accumulation of treasures. Now, Jesus is not saying, do not rob people to get treasures on earth. Do not use dishonest business practices to get treasures on earth. Get as much as you can, as long as it's in the right way. That'd be fine. That's the, Jesus doesn't give any indication that that's what he's talking about. He says, don't lay them up on earth, whether through honest labor or we trying to accumulate and pile up riches. That will be where our heart is as well. Do the worries of life, the cares of life, distract us ever instead of the words of life? Maybe relationships could distract us at times. In Matthew 10, Jesus talks about relationships and how they can be connected um, to to the gospel. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, we've read that passage, and I think we would never say those words. We would never say, I love someone more than Jesus. I don't think we would say it. We, would, we wouldn't say, I love my father more than I love Jesus, and I just have to say that. But while we might not say that, would we demonstrate that? Love is not just something that we say. That's not the way we like to receive love from other people. We like love to be demonstrated to us. Do we demonstrate that we love Jesus above other relationships, above other attachments with people that we might have here on this earth? In Matthew 8, someone comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you. First, let me go bury my father. You can read that in, in verse 21 of Matthew 8. And I, we might talk extensively, what exactly does that mean? Like, first, let me go bury my father. Does he saying, let me wait until my father dies and get those affairs in order? Is he literally saying, my father just died? Literally, I would like to go bury him. I don't know that we need to run from that, that explanation. That sounds like it might be too much. Like this is too hard of a teaching that I can't even bury my father as opposed to following Jesus. But that, that's what he says. And Jesus says, no, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That is a hard teaching to not love others more than Jesus sometimes because we do love others we have relationships with others and it can be tempting to put those before our Lord sometimes and not in a seemingly sinful way but how important is Jesus to us is relationships one of the many things we might be distracted by. Finally, maybe just our own plans can distract us. Martha, in our original passage, she had her idea of how this was going to work, that she was going to invite the teacher in, and she was going to be serving, she's preparing food, whatever she's doing, and this is how it should go. I'm, I'm doing what's right, 
And, and this is how this should work. She had her own plans for how this should be working, but she, Jesus explains to her, was wrong about that. And we might have our own plans for how our relationship with Jesus is going to go. We might have our own ideas that this is how Jesus is going to be involved in my marriage. This is how Jesus will be involved in the raising of my children. This is how I'll be involved in my work that I do. This is how I'll be involved in my schooling. And we decide kind of how that should work on our own. But is that really up for us to decide? Or is it another thing that's distracting us when the words of life might be right in front of us? And in our story, Mary, for her part, is sitting there. And she is wrapped up in what Jesus is teaching. And she receives some praise for that. Not because she's noble of heart or because she's making a good decision. Because when you choose the words of life over something else, you are making a good decision. And I don't think in this passage that Jesus is openly rebuking Martha, you know, I don't think she comes to him and says, Do you, don't you see my sister's not helping me? And Jesus turns to everyone there and says, everyone, you know, Martha has a question, everyone. And I, he seems to respond back to her to help her. You're distracted by a lot right now, Martha. But one thing is needed. Come be a part of that one thing as well. And so everyone that wanted to raise their hands, saying, I'm more like Martha, you're feeling real bad, and you knew we were going to go here, and now you're like, here we are. I, that, that's me. But hope is not lost. Let's talk about Mary a little bit. We, we often don't, I haven't heard a lot, we hear this lesson a lot. There may be some things we can learn about Mary as far as becoming more and less like her, possibly. Uh, another narrative account that we'll find in the Gospels featuring these two siblings can be found in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, where we will find that there's another sibling in this group. They have a brother, a brother named Lazarus. And that right at the beginning of chapter 11, the chapter sets the tone and tells you the conflict of this story. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And he's really ill. He's very sick. Not, well, oh, this is, no one is, there's no doubt that he is sick and that it is scary and that something needs to be done soon about this. So in verse 3 of chapter 11, the sisters sent to him, that being Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love or the one you love is ill. Makes sense. They have seen Jesus do some amazing things. They show some great faith here that their brother is sick. We know someone that has no problem helping those who are sick. Let's bring him here. It's what anyone would do. And yet, those familiar with the story, 
Jesus in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, the message comes, the one you love is sick, please come. He says to, to the disciples with him, this sickness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place. Now that's puzzling. The scripture goes out of its way to tell us these aren't just acquaintances of Jesus. These are not people that have lately joined the disciples. He loves all three of these people. The scripture goes out of, he loves these people. He knows them. He loves them. And people come and say, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus hears that message and he stays right where he is. And he stays there two more days. And then he says, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples are a little worried about this. We can read that it wasn't so great last time. People are seeking your life. Are, are you sure? And he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'll go wake him up. And the disciples don't exactly understand that. They're not really sure what's going on. Jesus explains further. He says, Lazarus has died. That's what I meant. He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake... I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. So the disciples are reeling a little bit that Lazarus was sick. You decided not to go. He's asleep. Oh, he died. And you're, you're glad that he died. And, and we're going into danger. Here you see Thomas kind of in that section. Some kind of throw up his hands in faith. So I think let's go die with him. You know, we, we, we crush Thomas sometimes for some of the things he says, but he seems to be ready to be with Jesus, whatever may happen, does not know what they are walking into. And Jesus makes his way now to Martha and to Mary and to the body of Lazarus. Jesus has decided to come back. Now, when Jesus came, I'm in verse 17, he found Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Many of the Jews have come. Jesus hasn't come yet. Now he's coming. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. That's a fascinating verse. And it can be lost sometimes in this bigger story of Jesus and Lazarus and what he is about to do. The power he is about to display. The command over death he is about to demonstrate. And we can read through his interactions here with Martha and Mary kind of quickly because we got to get to the tomb. And yet here we see Jesus coming. Martha goes out to him and they have a very fascinating discussion. But Mary stays in the house. 
and I interpret from that, Mary does not want to see Jesus right now. She wanted to see him two days ago or four days ago when she asked him to come help her brother. And now he's here, he's out there, and she is staying right where she is. Do we ever stay in the house? When we know where Jesus is, maybe even more, when we know where Jesus would like us to be, do we ever just stay figuratively in the house? And if so, why? Mary knows where to find Jesus right now, but she does not want to see him, talk to him, be around him. How do we do that same thing? What causes us maybe to do it? Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid to go be with Jesus or to go be where he would like us to be. In Matthew chapter 14, you can read about Peter in a moment to begin with of incredible faith in a boat in the midst of a raging storm, seeing Jesus literally walking to him on the water. And he says to Jesus, Lord, command me to come out there to you. And he says, come. And Peter goes right over the side of the boat and starts heading that way. And then the scripture tells us, this is verses 22 through 33 of Matthew 14, that he begins to see, to really take in the waves, the rain, the wind, and he becomes afraid and starts to sink. And I am not going to pile on Peter in this situation. It's, it takes a lot to even imagine what it's like to be in that situation. And yet his fear causes him to stop heading towards Jesus because it doesn't seem so safe anymore out here. I like the idea in the boat, but now that I'm out here, it doesn't seem so safe. Again, a story involving Peter in Luke 22, this time not in a storm, but around a fire outside a courthouse, so to speak, while Jesus is being tried and the crowd is kind of wondering, are there disciples out here amongst us? And they begin to narrow in on Peter because they recognize him or he, he sounds like he was with Jesus. And Peter just continually denies that he's a disciple, that he even knows him. He's taking oaths. I don't even know who you're talking about because he's afraid. And we are not above that behavior. We can be afraid in our lives to go where Jesus would like us to be, to go where we know we'll find him, maybe to even claim that we know him. Can fear make us stay away from Jesus? How about doubt? Of course, when we think about doubt, there's someone we often think about. We may think about Thomas, 
Now, we gave Thomas some, some praise before for having some courage to say, let's go die with Jesus. If that's what's to happen to him, we'll be with him. But after Jesus has raised from the dead, he's being told about this by his fellow disciples and apostles that they've seen him. And he says, I cannot believe that. That's too much. I know I have seen Jesus do so many things. I know he can think back to, I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but this, this is a bridge too far. I, I will not believe unless I literally touch him. And Jesus appears to Thomas, and he believes. And the scripture tells us that other disciples were saying the same thing as well. Let's not put it all on Thomas. Can doubt make us stay away from Jesus? When we think about where he's sending us, where he is, where he wants us to be, are we sure that that's where we'd like to go? Are we sure that's what the scripture says? When the scripture tells us, let the dead bury their own dead, do we doubt? Is that really what that could mean? Or is there a softer explanation? Is there some other way I can not have to follow after that hard teaching? Can doubt be a stumbling block for us? Maybe just unwillingness. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters someone known, we know him as the rich young ruler. And he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life. And Jesus tells him what he needs to do. And you would think the story would end differently than it does to ask such a powerful question and to not be put off and say, that's not a good question. You can't understand. To just be given an answer, this is what you should do then. And the rich young ruler is not sent away by Jesus. He walks away. He went away sorrowful, hearing Jesus' response that he needed to sell what he had, give to the poor, because he was unwilling to do that. He was willing to keep the commandments, apparently, that Jesus said initially, but he was unwilling to part with those things he valued so greatly and he stays away from Jesus following that. He walks away because he's unwilling to do what Jesus has asked him to do. And finally, maybe just sorrow can cause us to not want to be around Jesus. That seems to be what Mary is struggling with here in John chapter 11. Jesus has come Finally, in her eyes, she stays in the house. And after Jesus talks to Martha some, um, she comes back, calls her sister Mary and says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. He's asking for you to come out here. And when she heard it, she rose, she goes to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they follow as well. So now everyone's going out. Now Mary came to where Jesus was, saw him, fell at his feet, and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now this is very similar to something we didn't read that Martha says before. But Martha 
adds a little bit more. Martha says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, but I know you can still do something. I'm paraphrasing. Martha still acknowledges, this isn't hopeless. You're here. I know you can do something. You don't get that from Mary in this exchange. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Possibly, to paraphrase again, this is your fault. Because I told you when he was alive that he was sick and you did not come. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can our sorrow harm our relationship with our Lord? I think so. And some people may be here even this evening, listening to this, thinking about some pain or some sorrow that you have. And I'm not here to oversimplify that. And you might say, Alan, if you knew what I, had been, what I have been through, if you knew what I am going through, if you knew what had happened, you might say that and you say, you don't know, Alan. You don't know what I've been through. And you are right. I don't know. But Jesus knows. He does know. No matter what we have felt, he knows about it. He's felt it. Loss, loneliness, rejection, shame. He has felt it. The writer of Hebrews takes us there in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is not our high priest fulfilling his priestly duties, wondering what is wrong with all of you? What are you always talking about? What are you sad about? I don't know what that's like. That is not who our high priest is. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, the word says, Yet he did not sin. And in John chapter 11, even here, Jesus felt this exact sorrow. Verse 33, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He wept knowing exactly what he's about to do. Knowing that in a few moments, he'll be talking with Lazarus again. He'll be rejoicing with Mary again, with Martha again. But in this moment... He sees her weeping, the weeping of others, and his spirit is troubled, and he wept with them. Jesus feels the sorrow that we feel as well, and staying away from him 
is not a good response to finding some relief, to finding some hope. We want to be with the high priest that feels it, that empathizes with us, and that strengthens us in that. And Jesus is willing to feel this sadness. He's willing to feel this sorrow because, as he told the disciples, this could teach them something, what's about to happen. This could teach Mary something. It could teach Martha something. It can teach Alan something. It can teach you something, what he's about to do for Lazarus. And of course, I won't go through the rest of the story because we know the end. As he goes to the tomb, commands Lazarus to come out and raises him, restores him back to Mary and Martha. Just a demonstration of his complete power. And finally, one last account of our siblings here before we close Just in the next chapter, this will be a quick point here. John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. A dinner is held for Jesus not long after this. Lazarus is there. Mary and Martha are there. And even though they've both had some less than perfect encounters with Jesus previously, they've had to learn some things in their own way previously, when they are faced with that open tomb of their brother Lazarus, Martha is serving, Mary is showing adoration for our Lord, doing what she can, anointing him with oil, using her hair to wipe his feet. It's a great example for us. Do we have a similar response when we're faced with the open tomb of Jesus. When we consider, really think about who Jesus is, this one with the power over death, whom death could not hold, who came out of the tomb, what's our response? Are we like our our two sisters here? Do we respond with service, as Paul will talk about in Romans 12, giving great detail on what it means to be a living, continual sacrifice and the service that we display for the Lord and for others? And do we have the attitude of the servants that Jesus talks about in Luke 17? We do everything that's asked, and yet we say we're unprofitable servants because that's what we're here to do, because Jesus is the Lord. How about adoration? Is that a response? When you consider our raised Lord, 
we might say, yes, I want to show him adoration. I want to show him glory. I want to show my appreciation that, that I do adore him, that I want to glorify him. I want to show my love for him. Absolutely. Then do we do it in the way that he says to do it? As shown in John 14, where he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We, we might invent our own ways, We're going back to our idea of having our own plans. We might have our own ideas of how we would like to show our love for Jesus. Maybe we make a big spectacle and we have these, these great parties, whatever we might do. But Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, encourages the Christians to consider whatever choice you're making. They give some examples of things they were struggling with. He says, whatever choice you're making, do it to God's glory. Do it to show glory to God, to our Lord, to show adoration. Make the choice that does that. Is that our response when we consider our Lord in the open tomb? Just a few things we see in these siblings we've talked about tonight. They may not be the most famous siblings in the scriptures, the ones that first come to mind, but they can teach us a lot if we are paying attention. And that's what they taught me. And speaking of great siblings, while we close, would it surprise you to know that Jesus would be glad to be called your sibling? That this Lord, the one who conquered death, who came out of the grave, that he would be glad to be called your sibling. This is what we began our worship with tonight in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers and sisters. That's exciting. That Jesus would be glad to call you his brother. Glad to call you his sister. To be siblings in that sense with our Lord. Do you want to be in that family? The open tomb is before you tonight. Will you respond? Will you respond in a similar way, in a way that recognizes the power of Jesus and wants to serve him, wants to glorify him, wants to name him as Lord to repent of your sins, to be buried with him in baptism? Is that your response when you consider the open tomb of our risen Lord? Possibly you've had a relationship with Jesus already in the past. But lately, you've been staying in the house for some reason. And I don't know what it might be. Is that where you find yourself tonight? If so, 
then Martha has the same message for you that she had for Mary. The Lord is calling for you. Whatever need you might have tonight, we're excited to help you in any way that we can. We'd ask you to come forward now while we stand and sing together.